Well, I don't know about you guys. I'm really encouraged this morning. I'm glad that you guys are here. Thank you for sharing with us. In my, as we were singing that song, in my mind, I, I was as I was praying for you guys, um, the, the idea of the, those first few people that have come to Christ are like little pebbles that fall and cause a great avalanche. And so just those, it seems so small right now, but that it would, it would cause a great flood of people to come to know Jesus. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. Amen. It's good to be with you. I got, now I've got to shift gears emotionally. Oh, I wasn't always a crier, man. I like, I don't know what happened. Having teenagers, I think, made me a crier. I don't, I don't know. Um, we, we're in, you know, we're in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter five. We're now to the passage in verse 22 to 33 that deals with marital relationships. And so we're going to spend four weeks on this. Um, but let me just give us a running start this morning. In 1979, so almost 40 years ago, a leading sociology textbook here in the U.S. used in colleges nationwide had three main things to say about Human sexuality. Here are the three main points of the sociology textbook from 1979. We're going way back. Number one, the textbook said we are born asexual, neither hetero nor homosexual in nature. That's what the textbook said. I'm not advocating these points, by the way. I'm just telling you what the textbook said. Number two, the textbook said that children's sex is determined by labels that parents and culture place on them before year two. And here's number three. The textbook said that all of our sexual behavior and all of our sexual identity is learned and affected by our environment. None of it is innate. None of it is something that we're born with. This is a textbook. Now, this is 1979. I was born in 1974, so I predate the textbook by just a few years. But do you think that in the last 39 years, the 40 years, the culture has come around to a more biblical view or moved farther away? Farther away. Yeah, it's a strange and unprecedented time that we live in where men can be women and women can be men and down can be up and up can be down. And it, and it all started in Genesis 3 in the garden when our first mother, Eve, believed the lies of the serpent who enticed her with the idea that you can be like God. And then our first father went willingly Right when he, when he should have been leading her away from temptation, he followed her leadership into temptation. And the result is we live in a fallen world and in a day and age where we're all little gods unto ourselves. And we can, we can just bend the very laws of nature and physics and reality to, to suit our every women desire. And so our world is just upside down. Uh, one blogger, I, I happened upon this quite by accident. He was writing a satire piece that I think brilliantly exposes the ridiculousness of the world we live in. This is what he said, just an excerpt from his blog post. He says, my wife is pregnant. And recently we went for an ultrasound only to be unexpectedly assaulted by the worst kind of bigotry and closed-mindedness you can imagine. The ultrasound technician observed our child in the womb, observed our child's reproductive organ, and declared right then and there, completely on her own, with no warning, that we're having a boy. 
I have never been so outraged in my whole life. Who is she to assume that a reproductive organ automatically means that our child is a boy? Who is she to assign a gender based on something as meaningless and utterly arbitrary as a reproductive organ? You can't just go around observing physical realities and drawing basic conclusions based on those. I'm overwhelmed at the bigotry. Do you hear the sarcasm there? Our culture is just so dedicated to this false notion of gender fluidity. And, and as a culture, we've been moving for many years towards a place of trying to achieve an androgynous utopia where women are treated as men and men are treated as women and there's no distinguishable difference between the sexes. And, and, and I fear that when it comes to the hearts and minds of the majority of the populace in our culture today, in our society, that we have arrived at the place of indoctrination. And, and those who haven't arrived at that place are being driven into silence by fear tactics and intimidation. Now, I I just need to stop for just a minute and acknowledge that there may be some people here this morning who, for you, my introduction to this topic might seem disrespectful. And I want to just stop and say that I I just can't for the life of me figure out how that could be because I don't self-identify as disrespectful. Um, Why is this something that we even have to talk about? What is the reason beneath the reason that this is happening? And the answer is secular humanism, which is founded on the idea that you, the individual, are the source of all knowledge and morality and truth. You are the source. You, the individual. And so the result of that is what we call relativism. And you'll hear people say this all the time. Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. That's relativism. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, so when a culture embraces humanism and relativism, we lose the concept of truth. And sex and gender become casualties in a culture war. Okay? And so then, so then in our culture today, gender is what you make it. And, and, and I just need to say, like, as, I, as I read the text of Scripture and as I study the Bible every week, um, that is an insult to the God who made us. Uh, and it degrades the way in which he's made us. And so because we live in a society uh, of absurdity and absolute madness, it is necessary for us to talk about uh, Jesus' call to grow in maturity. And as we grow in our understanding, we have to address these ideas of what it means for men and women uh, to be created equal in value and different in roles. We have to talk about these things as part of our growing up and our being sanctified. So this week, what we're going to talk about is biblical womanhood and femininity. Now, I gave this talk to a mops group, Mothers of Preschoolers, two years ago. You want to talk about intimidating? Just be the only dude walking into a room of like 60 women and saying, here's what it means to be feminine. Dude, I had like four cups of coffee before I went into that room. And the talk was over in like 10 minutes. It went really fast. Uh, that's, that's intimidating. This is cake. You guys are cake compared to that. But here's the question some of you are already asking. Why is a dude teaching about this? Why is a guy, I mean, shouldn't a woman be teaching about biblical femininity, biblical womanhood? Now that's a question in some of your minds already. Well, let me just stop and say that's the wrong question, okay? It's the wrong question. It's the question that the culture has taught you to think, to default to, because it implies a sense of unfairness. 
and, it, and, and there's a perceived injustice that a man would talk about femininity. Uh, but but what, what it, me, it moves you away from, it moves you towards feeling and away from dealing with what is actually true, right? That's the, one of the main and favorite strategies of our enemy, Satan, is to divert us from the truth and to lead us towards our feelings, which can often be misleading. It's also a question, why is a dude teaching on biblical womanhood? It's also a question that uh, is rooted in that secular humanist framework, right? Whereby only the individual and the individual's experience can define what is true for the person. So how could I, as a person who identifies as a, as a heterosexual male, even begin to speak about anything related to women or femininity? See how, we, see how as a culture we bought into that lie, right? It's the wrong question. The right question would be, What does the word of God say about this issue? What does God say? What does God think about this issue? The issue is whether or not God's word is sufficient and true. That's the issue for us as the people of God. And there's no other single issue than this issue of gender and marriage and family that tears the fabric of a society uh, when when it's just dissected. And it's not a mistake that in dealing with a section of scripture in Ephesians 5 that deals with the importance of relationships, that this marriage relationship comes first. It comes first because the culture or the society of any given people is like a, it's like building a building, right? Uh, Out of bricks. And, and, um, and so the, the institution of family kind of rooted in the marriage of one man and one woman is the, is the, the, those are the bricks in the wall. Family is the, the bricks that make up the wall. And then marriage is the mortar that holds it all together, right? Marriage is the mortar that holds it all together. And belief in God and, and in a Judeo-Christian view of how life works and how the world works, that's the foundation that the whole building is built on. And we gave that up a long time ago. That foundation has eroded out from under our culture already. And the walls are still standing, but what's happening is they're beginning to crumble in now. The walls are crumbling in and all of it's falling down. And, um, and part of it's because we don't know a brick from a marshmallow. We just, we just don't know the difference anymore. So here's the game plan. Four weeks on this passage four weeks on Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, two weeks on women, wives, womanhood, and femininity. And then two weeks on dudes, husbands, manhood, and masculinity. Now the teaching of scripture on this subject is really plain. What God requires of us in our marital duties is taught in multiple places in scripture and is not obscure. It's not obscure. So let's just jump into the text. If you got your Bibles, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. If you have your mobile device, go to the YouVersion app and you can follow along my sermon notes under events. Here we go. Wives. I almost can't say the next word. (laughs) Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, thought you were off the hook. You're not. 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Just circle back there to verse 22 again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's just deal with the dirty word right away, submit. Let's just deal with it. In our culture, that's a dirty word, and it, here's what submit means. It means to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. So, so let's bump out the parts that don't apply and keep the parts that apply. It means to accept and yield to the authority or will of another person. In this case, wives, it's the husband. It means to submit to, to accept and to yield to that authority and to the will of another person. Now, the Bible does not require universal submission of all women to all men, nor of any given woman to any given man. This is unique to the marriage relationship, okay? I know when I was teaching through this with young adults years ago, about five girls came to me right after the talk and were like, so do we have to submit to every guy? It's like, no, 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 no. No, actually, because you can't serve more than one authority at a time, right? This scriptural teaching really amounts to a prohibition against women submitting to all men. It's actually a protection. When a wife is submitted to her husband, she's under his authority. She's not in a place to be trampled upon by other men, right? It's a protection to them. In fact, the scripture says, submit to your husbands. So scripture requires the submission of a wife to her husband. Now, no authority in this fallen world is absolute, and that includes the authority of a husband, okay? When the authority of a husband turns rancid and, and, uh, and just acidic and nasty and soured, a wife should seek the help of fathers, brothers, friends, pastors, elders to deal with that authority in her life and stand up against it. That, that should be a very natural response. And I have been involved in several interventions of that nature personally. But if the issue at hand, now listen to this. I'm doing what Paul does in Romans. He, he, it's called an interlocutor where he, he anticipates what his readers are going to object to and he just takes it away from them. Right? So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to anticipate all your objections and take them away from you. But let me just say this. If the issue at hand in the marriage relationship between the husband and the wife is not immoral, unethical, or illegal, I think that you wives in the room are hard-pressed to justify a lack of submission. Let me just say it again. If the issue at hand in the marriage relationship, the disagreement between the husband and the wife is not immoral, unethical, or illegal, I think that you're going to be hard-pressed to justify a lack of submission. And there's nothing left to call that except sin. 
Okay? There's nothing left to call that except sin. Say, wait, 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 pastor, that's so harsh, that's so harsh. Yeah, here's the deal. Scripture commands this thing, and then you say, I'm not going to do the thing, but you don't have a legitimate reason not to do the thing. That's sin. That's sin. Try not to make eye contact with anybody right now. It's really hard. It's really hard. Especially my wife, who's sitting right there. I'm, like, I'm not preaching to you, honey. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to, I'm just looking right over the tops of your heads as much as I can. This is the idea of headship. Headship. Now, authorities are like objects in physics. Objects have mass, right? And two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time right? Everybody on track with that? Basic physics 101. Okay. And and so a woman and a man cannot both be the head in the home. They can't both be the head, right? So what you have is an order of authority. You have, oh, another dirty word, hierarchy in the family structure. Oh man, just makes my gut wrench, right? Now, now I understand I understand why hierarchies and authorities are seen with suspicion, especially in our secular humanist culture, because nobody can tell me what's right and wrong for me, right? Okay, but we're not talking. So, so I, I, we could list hundreds of bad authorities, hundreds of them we could point to, terrible authorities, but we're not talking about those people. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about you, wives, in this room right now, submitting to you husbands who are in the room right now. Now, if you've got a bad authority at home, come talk to me legitimately. Please, I mean it. Because there's a place that needs to be addressed in the church, in the body of Christ, okay? But at the same time, in a healthy society, if wives generally are, uh, are submissive to their own husbands. They're, one of the byproducts is this kind of cheerful deference to the leadership of men in general. It's a byproduct. And, and speaking on behalf of dudes, can I just say that's a reality that would be really welcomed in our culture, even celebrated, though undoubtedly resented by some. Um, but this is, a, this is about deference to male leadership, not a commentary on the quality of male Leadership. Do you understand the difference? This is what scripture says is, is what should happen, not what's wrong with what is happening. Okay? And, and, and we can get to that, and we will get to that in the two weeks where we deal with dudes. I'm going to just level the dudes. Ladies, you're like, this is really hard. Just wait. Okay? The guys are going to get it two fists right in the face. It's coming. Okay? And, and it's for me too. I don't say that as somebody who's mastered this. Okay? I, I, I take a beating for six days and then I get to come in here and beat you on the seventh day. But it's not, it's not nothing compared to what happens to my heart, okay? Um, when male leadership, when males are tyrants and fools and scoundrels, godly men have as much objection to it as godly women do, okay? So when necessary, we take direct action on that. We're talking about headship. And then here's the parallel that the scripture gives on headship is Jesus and the church, uh oh. Thought I had an out here, ladies. Thought I had an out. And he talks about the headship being like Jesus in the church. He said, The husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So, just to clarify, let me just ask all you born again, Jesus loving people here in the room are there supposed to be areas of your life where Jesus does not have access? This is the correct answer the shaking of the head back and forth in the no, right? Are there supposed to be areas of your life where Jesus does not have authority? No. Are there supposed to be areas of your life where you cannot, uh, Jesus can't tell you what's right or bring correction to you? No. 
Okay, so that's the parallel for clarification's sake. That's the parallel, right? So there's no area of home life, marriage, relationship, raising kids, budgeting, finances, and on and on where the husband does not have headship and authority in the home, period. Period. Now that doesn't mean that if, if a guy's smart, he's gonna ask his wife a lot of questions. Baby, what do you think about this? What's your perspective on this? In our house, detail-oriented, not detail-oriented. <laughs> Keeping the books, ba- balancing a budget. If this was on me, I'd, the IRS would have arrested me many years ago. <laughs> many years ago. Right? But that doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility to engage with her in that. Right? There's, there's, a, there's a synergy here in the home. Uh, my headship doesn't mean that I get to kick back and put my feet up and let her do everything because I told her to. Right? Well, let's talk about the extent of the headship okay? because it's limited to the home. It's, this is a home thing. This is a marriage thing. The requirement of submission within the marriage does, does not pro- prohibit uh, the occasional circumstance when a woman in civil society might find her sh- herself in a leadership role over men. I think about Deborah in the book of Judges, Esther, Lydia all come to mind. I would only add this little caveat that when feminine leadership becomes widespread and common in society, um, that's not, not, in my estimation, a sign of progress necessarily, um, but it's a sign that men have abdicated. It's a sign that men have abdicated. And, and as an example, some people point to Isaiah 3.12 that indicates that women in governmental positions of leadership are a sign of God's judgment. I tell you what, I'll let you decide on that. Okay, if you want to know my personal opinion, ask me later today and I will tell you. I'll tell you what I think about that, but I'm not, you, you decide on Isaiah 3 2. When it comes to the extent of the husband's leadership in the home, the Bible does not teach, guys, listen, this is for you. Everything else has been for the ladies. Men, tune in. The Bible does not teach that husbands have to enforce the requirement given to the wives. You must submit to me. It doesn't work. I know, I've tried. It doesn't work. And the more I go around saying, I'm the head of this house, the less I feel like I'm actually the head of the house. It's the craziest thing, right? And you just can't force it because true submission is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart and it's only rendered through grace and faith. So a husband doesn't have the capacity to make it happen anyway. My first task, gentlemen, your first task, if you're a husband, future husband, listen, take notes, is to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. He's to lead by example, even if she's disobedient to scripture and refuses to submit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change how you lead and love. If there are areas where your wife is not submitting to you, any area in your home life, here's the deal. She answers to Jesus and she will answer to Jesus for that. Ladies, that should scare you just a little bit, I hope. If there's any area of home life where you're not submitting to your husband, you'll answer to Jesus for that. Guys, that should free you up. The ladies, the fact that husbands cannot mandate or manufacture this does not make it any less mandatory for you. Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands in everything as unto the Lord. And the marriage ceremony, at least when I officiate it, rightly includes a vow for the bride to submit to her husband. And, and here's the thing we've got to understand. Within Christian theology, there's no tension between submitting to an authority 
that's essentially your equal. There's no tension there. There's no tension there. God the Father is the eternal Father to Jesus the Son, and yet the Father and the Son are equally God, and they're equally valuable. They're different persons, but the same God. They're different in roles, whereby the Son submits to the will of the Father and comes under his will, but they're completely equal in value. And this is why I'm so fond of saying that feminism is actually a Trinitarian heresy, because Co-equality within the Godhead uh, does not in any way undermine the hierarchy that's modeled in the Godhead, that, that the Father's will is obeyed by the Son and that the Spirit emanates from the Son, right? And so there is a hierarchy of authority and yet they're co-equal. Jesus is not less God. He's not less valuable, right? And so the husband is the head of the wife. Uh, our culture, man, it just persists in this, this idea that in order to be equal in value, we have to be equal in every other way. And that's just rubbish. It's rubbish. The husband's the head of the wife, and yet Scripture says they're one flesh. Men and women stand on level ground when it comes to being created in the image of God, Genesis one twenty seven. Men and women are equal when it comes to our fallenness and our sin, 1 Corinthians 15. There's no distinction when it comes to our position in Christ, Galatians 3.28. Men and women are clearly equal in all of these ways, in all of these senses, so that the teaching of the Bible elsewhere regarding a sub, the submission of a wife to her husband means that submission to someone who is their equal is not incoherent, it's just undesirable. It's not incoherent, it's just unattractive to our 21st century American way of thinking. So why is this so stinking hard? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis 3. The first book of the Bible, third chapter. And I want to read for you 20 verses. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, I don't know where that add-on came from. That wasn't what God said. There was some additional material there. I don't know if Adam threw that in for good measure, just being like, don't even go near it. Like put a 25-foot buffer around the tree. I don't know what he did, right? That's not in chapter 2. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it And Adam was just coming over the hill half mile away and he saw this thing happening. You know that slow motion montage there in the movie version? It's like, no, it's just everything's in slow motion because he can't get to her, right? That's what I thought for years and years and years. Look at the next verse. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. Dude was standing right there. He did nothing. He said Nothing. His job was to protect her. He didn't do it. He abdicated. He abdicated. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Now, I cannot even imagine what Eden was like. When you're so in the presence of God that you're not even aware that you're naked. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. I think that he would be so consumed with the presence of God that they were not even self-aware. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Isn't that just like the Lord to give us every opportunity to own our sin, right? He knows where they are. He knows what's happened. It's like, hey, hey, what happened? Tell me what happened. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, Lord, I repent. I own my sin right now before you. Please have mercy on me. Is that what happened? No, no. He he showed us all how to pass the buck. It's beautiful. Look what he does. Have you eaten of the tree, Adam? Um, The woman. (laughs) Yeah, the woman that you gave me. Yeah, she's the one. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. All right, you stand right there. Shut your mouth. I'll come back to you. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? She said, hmm, I have an opportunity here to model repentance or I can follow the example of my head. I think I'll do that. So she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She's just following in his footsteps. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise or crush, depending on your translation, your head, but you shall bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the gospel, by the way. This is an uh, an allusion, it's a prophecy of Jesus crushing Satan at the cross. But to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. On behalf of all men, I'd like to just stop right now and apologize to every lady in the room. I have no idea what that would be like for you without pain. Um, Sorry about that. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is not sexual desire. That is a desire for his position of authority and headship. It's going to cause strife. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it will bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread until you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and you will return to dust. So guys, check this out. So exciting that everything that we do is that much harder now because of sin. Whatever work you endeavor to do yields less fruit, less results than it was intended to, and it's that much harder. So we're going to go to work for eight, 10 hours a day, five, six days a week, come home. And we think that works over, but it's not. The work's just beginning because now we have to try to relate to this other person that we're married to that we don't understand because she doesn't think like we think. She's a feeling. What 
feeling, right? What are those? And, and, then, and now we have work to do at home that is really difficult to do because there's, there's more of it. It's harder. The labor is harder and the, and the yield is less. So what is our temptation, gentlemen? Come home and say, man, I'm, just, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Here's what I do. I just want to burn out. Just want to check out. Just want to watch TV. Just want to watch Sports Center. Give me the remote. Click, click, click click. And as the guy abdicates at home, as he withdraws at home, here's what happens. The woman says, well, he's not leading us. I'll lead us. I have to lead us. And so she steps into the role of authority. And then as she steps into the role of authority, hey, the guy goes, well, well she's taking the kids to church. That just gives me more time on Sunday to kick around in my boxers. Cool. Click, click, remote control, right? And then it's a cycle that feeds itself and it is insidious and evil and destructive. And at some point, usually the woman awakens to the reality first and she goes, wait a minute, this is not how God designed this to be. I better stop this right now and take control and make sure that we get in alignment with God's will. The problem with that is that she's still leading, right? And so this is really wicked, insidious place where God has to awaken the head of the home and convict his heart to, to make a change in the home. It's just... Oh, women have a deep creational need to be loved and led so that they might submit and follow. And men have this deep creational need to be respected and followed. And when these needs are thwarted, when otherwise frustrated, the end result is a deep unhappiness and dissatisfaction for both parties. And because of the curse here that follows the fall, ladies, you have a deep resistance to dutiful submission to your husbands. It's it's in you. And it's ironic precisely because such submission would lead you into joy and satisfaction that comes from obedience to God and operating according to his design. You're short-circuiting your own joy. It may or may not improve the quality of your marriage depending on the sin issues there, but it it would most certainly improve your walk with Jesus. And the prophecy, again, that her desire will be for her husband is not speaking of sexual attraction or the need for romantic getaways. It's a predictive prophecy that there's going to be a struggle for headship and for the role of authority in every marriage because both people are fallen. So ladies, I want to encourage you. In the power of the Spirit, instead of trying to gain mastery over your husband or future husband, you should struggle to gain mastery over this fallen impulse in yourself. And in contrast to the fall, stands redemption and God's call upon wives to rise up in the spirit and live according to his will and his word and his design. And, and, and so in that spirit, I'd like to offer a definition of biblical womanhood that's not exhaustive, but I think it's a good framework from which to build as we move into next week. Here's the definition of biblical womanhood. It is the freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture Strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways. I'll read it again. Biblical womanhood, biblical femininity is the freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways. Let me just break down three parts of this, and I'll save the rest for next week. It's a freeing disposition, which means it's not a set of rules, okay? It's a disposition of the heart, It's a spiritual relational bent that expresses itself in a myriad of forms. It's an attitude. 
And the goal is not to shackle here. The goal is to free the personality, to free the expression of the individual woman in engaging the will and gladly and joyfully submitting to her husband. And the question that our culture is so concerned with these days is, well, but does it liberate? Does it liberate? But the definition of liberation is wrong. We think liberation is freedom from rules, freedom from constraints, freedom from discipline. Listen to me. As a music major, as a person with a bachelor's degree in music performance, I can tell you that the concert pianist is free in a way that we are not free, precisely because of discipline. That person can sit down at a grand piano and play Chopin and just lull an entire room of hundreds of people into silence with their mastery of that beautiful instrument. Because of discipline, not because of the absence of discipline. There's a freedom that only comes from discipline, right? And so that person's free in a way that we don't think of freedom. It's a freeing disposition. Look at the words receive and affirm. To receive and affirm, that is to advocate for and submit to masculine leadership in the home and in the church when exercised rightly in God-honoring ways. To recognize that such male leadership is natural and godly and to receive it and celebrate it with gladness when it is carried out. To affirm it, say yes, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. And then the phrase strengthen leadership does not mean that women are not strong does not mean that women are never to lead things. But when it comes to headship in the home and when it comes to pastoral ministry in the church, there are two positions that scripture withholds from women. It does not mean that women are not smart. It does not mean that women are not talented. It does not mean any other deficiency in a woman. So be careful, ladies, focusing on the one thing that you cannot have at the expense of all that is available to you. That's precisely what they did in the garden. said, you can eat all of this stuff. There's only one rule. And then they got fixated on the one rule, right? Aren't we prone to that? What does Paul say in Romans 7, 7? I wouldn't have known covetousness if the law hadn't said don't covet. Just take your three-year-old and set them down in the floor and then say, look at all these toys I brought for you. Don't touch that thing. Watch what happens. It's like, I gotta touch the thing, right? Because you've awakened in them the law of God. This is one thing. Liberty, freedom, and ultimate joy for Christian wives cannot be enjoyed outside of this appointed boundary. A wife who rejects her obligation to love, honor, and obey is like a bird who's thrown away the constraints of having wings. Biblical womanhood is a freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways. And the enemy of this is pride. The enemy of this is selfishness. The enemy of this is, well, I have to do uh, this for me first. And what about, uh, what about the phrase worthy men? Are we even going to get to that? What about appropriate ways? Well, there's more in the coming weeks as we unpack First Peter 3, which is a parallel passage, and more on worthy men. In the following two weeks, we will get there. I just want to stop and say, have I kicked the hornet's nest enough for one day? I feel like maybe I have. It's a, by the way, it's a spiritual gift. So uh, just, just wrapping it up by way of application. Guys in the room, listen to me, guys. Your application piece is to love her like Jesus loves us. You can't make her submit. And there's nothing magical about reminding her again and again that you're the head of the home. It's like if I just say it 31 times, she'll get it. No. No. If somebody's gone into triple digits, I can just tell you, no. Um, 
single guys, I hope you're taking notes. You're not looking for the complete package in your future wife. You're looking for a woman whose heart is, has a trajectory towards godliness, okay? You're not gonna find a, a woman uh, in her 20s who's the complete package in this way because most of this is on-the-job training, okay? Young single ladies, I hope you're taking notes too, uh, that you're cultivating this disposition in your heart. Now you're striving to obey Jesus and his word above all other things. And then married ladies, the blessings of God and your own joy hang in the balance here. Your own joy hangs in the balance. Your fallen sin nature will rise up against you in fear and insecurity and will drive you to the place of usurping authority. You must gain mastery over that impulse and no one else can do it for you. No one else can do it for you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So there's power available to you but you must engage your will and you must reign in your emotions. Now, last week I asked the question about a dozen times. Are you willing to obey God's word and God's will regardless of the cost? Same question applies. His will is clear. What will you do with God's word today? Jesus, would you drive your word deep down in our hearts? And I know that this is unpopular and I know that it is difficult but I pray, Lord, that you would take your words and you would apply them. I can only say what you've said and try to explain it just briefly, but only by the power of your spirit is your word truly understood and applied to us. And so we just ask you in this moment again, with a heart of expectation, that you would do that for us. You said you would. You said your spirit would illuminate your word. Help us to understand it. Give us hearts, not just that want to understand it so that we know it, so that we have some cognizant information stored in our brains, but hearts that want to obey it. Hearts that want to embrace it, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. Lord, we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.